0: This podcast is brought to you by The Common Mission Project. Hello, and welcome to The Common Mission Podcast series brought to you by The Common Mission Project. With me, as always, is my co-host, Rodrigo. Hi, Rodrigo. How are you doing I today? I do very well. How, how have you been? I'm good, uh, all things considered. Uh, there's a, We're getting that spring weather rolling through, so if you're hearing any wind noises or anything in the recording, I'm sorry. Doing my best here, but uh,
1: that is that time of the year. Yeah, I have my dog around here somewhere. So same thing. If you if you hear him barking, uh, that's that's the reason. He doesn't want to go out when the weather is nice. Yeah, oh, yeah, of
0: course. That's how it works with dogs, right? <laughs> Only when it's miserable and mucky, and you can't you can't get them clean or inside the house. So the,
1: the, the day after you 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 gave them a bath, that's when they want to roll in the mud. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, welcome back to another
0: episode here. And, you know, one of the things is we were talking about what kind of topics and things we want to be uh, going on this season. You know, there's been a lot of talk in, in higher education and publications uh, recently about students are not feeling fulfilled in the classroom and, and higher education. I think anybody who's taught a, a hacking for or an I-Core uh, entrepreneurship innovation has realized that the while there is tremendous value in that traditional lectern paradigm where faculty are. Uh, teaching theory and, and getting practical things out to their students, there's something very important about the, the value of getting out of the classroom. So, um, you know, that's what we're going to focus on on today is, is the, the value of getting out of the classroom and, and the implications for students. And we're going to touch on some of the, uh, the publications that have come out recently that, uh, that kind of highlight these points. Um, but kind of kicking this off, Rodrigo, you know, a few weeks back, uh, we, and I know this is going to be a stamp in time, but anyways, Commission website, will link to it is we published an article on our website about the value of getting out of the classroom. And, and the impetus behind this was waking up and doing my my normal uh, news reviews on, you know, the Chronicle, Inside Higher Ed, Defense One, these different things. And and there's a lot of articles talking about how students are just disillusioned and their experience in the classroom, they feel, and oftentimes they're not engaged, but they don't feel like the value is there and, and helping them prepare for when they get out into the real world. So that's what Hacking for really does in a lot of ways. So. That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today in this episode is the value of, of getting students out of their comfort
1: zone and, and getting out of the classroom to do the, the majority of their work. And it's interesting because in many ways, this, for, for those veterans that might be listening to us that, who, who have taught uh, hacking for class multiple times, this tracks really nicely on the idea of the Lean Launchpad, right? When you think about what Steve Blank uh, and, and others, but I mean, Steve Blank as, as the person who recognized that, branded it and, and, and gave it the visibility that it has... Uh, did that was really positive is that they came with the realization that in order to do entrepreneurship you have to be in close contact and get out of the building right that that mantra and, and to build a system that it's basically experimental right and mm-hmm. and and this idea of getting entrepreneurs to experience right? It's more or less what we're seeing right now with students right now struggling with also that lack of experience. So if beforehand, before the startup movement, uh, companies were applying waterfall approaches where they would have very little experiential approaches to the construction of their MVPs, in fact, the term MVP might not even be appropriate, prototypes or or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, What we're seeing right now is that, as you were mentioning, more and more students are feeling this disconnection. Now, you said there's a lot of value in the lecture. And I agree with you, although although cognitively speaking, right, the science is very robust in this regard. Right. By yes. six months, you will have forgotten 90% of what was lectured to you. You might have yes. feeling, you might have, whereas experiential learning stays with you forever. So yes. uh, the truth is that Lectures as we understand them, come from the I mean for those who speak either any any French or Spanish or any Romance language, lectures come from from, from the word to read right? right and it literally was the in, in, in monasteries right so the the one of the one of the uh, uh, brothers reading to the others so they could copy the book because there was no printing press. Right. So the value was for you to receive all that information. So you could use it later. So even in that case, the expectation was that we go to the lecture, so you get your copy of the textbook, basically, and then Mm -hmm. later on, you learn from it. We were never supposed to learn just by listening. So listening is one of the channels that we'll use to learn, and it might be a very effective one. And we all have had a fantastic professor that was a great performer in the stage or Mm -hmm. had a very amazing way of communicating. But the truth is that we learn more from the feeling of that lecture than the lecture itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's what you're, you know, like you, if you talk to, you know, my, my wife is a, is a nurse practitioner and, you know, Rodrigo, we've I've, I've asked her this question about, you know, how does school prepare you to do your job? And it's like I've got theoretical foundations on what I what I needed but I learned to do my job by being in the job. And that's, if you talk to people, I mean, that's what you think about. If you're a medical doctor, yep. why does residency last as long as it does? Because it's great to have the textbook knowledge and you have to have a foundational element of knowledge. I'm a big proponent of that at Rodrigo. I know you are as well, yep. but the application of that knowledge is not done in that lectern paradigm. It's that value again of getting out of the classroom. No,
1: that's exactly right. So, um, there are exceptions to that. So, for example, you're struggling with trigonometry, and uh, sure. a professor comes and gives you this fantastic example and it connects. But that, even that one would have been better in a mentoring session, right? So, because mm-hmm. your problem was a very practical one, and you just got lucky, and he or she decided to take that topic that day and explain it in a way that made sense to you. Exactly. Right? So the, the value of the flip classroom, that it's something we advocate and we'll talk more about, mm-hmm. is that I'll give you all the content and now I have the I have removed the opportunity cost of spending all that time communicating stuff that could be a YouTube video. Right. right. And now I can ask you, okay, where are you struggling? And I can go student by student and we can learn from each other. Right. So this is the beauty of the case model that that right. Harvard, I don't want to say pioneer, but popularized. Right. It, and for, for for business schools. And certainly for, now we see it more and more, successful K-12 uh, uh, try to spend more and more time in direct uh, uh, interaction with the students, with the kids, mm-hmm. and much less with the stage in stage model that for many years, uh, and it's difficult. I mean, hell, we faculty, we like the sound of our voice and we yes, get good at it. Yeah. So, so it's difficult to break that relationship that we have with the with the center stage of the classroom.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, this is where you know I'm gonna jump into the this some of the the pretense to, or the pretext to the to the article that we worked on a couple months ago. But I want to bring in a quote. So uh, Pete Newell, who's familiar to everybody listening to this, I'm sure. And if you're not, please uh, check out our Pete Newell podcast. It was our, our season two season opener. Three. Yes. Yeah. Um, but there's in in def- the article he wrote for Defense One. I wanted to uh, highlight something that he said about that I think really underscores this idea of getting out of the classroom. And I'll, I'll read this verbatim. And what Pete said is, we've learned that getting out and talking to those most affected by your work is revelatory and leads to further, more niched discussions with unforeseen users. During my time with the Army's Rapid Equipping Force, our best insights came from dismounted soldiers. They knew what it felt like to run out of battery power midway through a mission, and they told us what they needed in no uncertain terms. These conversations, if patiently pursued, eventually reveal the vital clue to solving the problem. So notice that Pete didn't talk about sitting in a lab somewhere working on battery yep. power. Not that there's not value in that, but he talked about what do you experience when you're on a mission in a war zone, for example, here, that what happens when you you miss this stuff? And I think that's kind of like really highlights in, in a very broad fashion you got you can't do all this work in a classroom it just it, all that knowledge
1: cannot be found or created there yeah you you cannot build a startup on on your garage that's a myth right you right, you yes. you build a product in your garage you have a meeting with your partners in your garage but eventually you have to get out and see if people will buy the apple 1 and then the apple 2 right so the right. The, the myth of the of the garage startup is 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 wrong in the sense that yeah that was a headquarter right that's the that's some 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 crummy a, a, a garage in somewhere in Palo Alto, Mountain View, uh, ended up being the place where we would meet together. Right? That 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 speaks about the 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 uh, uh, austerity in which entrepreneurship can be built at the beginning. Yes. But the, the real part of the story of every big uh, uh, major venture is. Uh, Steve Jobs haggling to, to close the deal is Bill Gates uh, going to IBM and, and and hacking his way all the way to getting MS-DOS as the default OS uh, in every machine that was shipped, right? So the real interaction is these people going out. And the same goes for mission-driven entrepreneurship, right? Yes. So we talked about this, I think with Pete, but Jim, you and I have discussed it. all oh, absolutely. Of the yeah. Um, how many times we go and we give Uh, uh, Special Forces, a backpack with gear that a year later comes back home and 90% of that gear is unused, right? It was dead weight that nobody took the time to then debrief and ask the question, are we doing this right or not? This is what we are trying to avoid. Yeah, and uh, you know, another another quote from Pete, but I think it, you know, perfectly timed with
0: this, with what you're saying, Rodrigo, is this is something that he, that he says is within your organization, you have to know your problem and understand it inside it out. Notice how he doesn't say solution. He said, you have to know what your yeah. problem is. This is where a lot of, I think, uh, a lot of people just get this wrong, not even just students. I've experienced it professionally more times than I care to count. So what he goes on to say is, what exactly are you trying to solve? Or parts and documents will not give you the insight afforded by getting out of the building and talking to people. This is what you're saying. Yeah, you can have your headquarters in Palo yep. Alto. Um, that's a, a beautiful, brilliant thing. But it's all that work that's happening behind the scenes that people are, you know, you romanticize this idea of a garage. But that's not where the discovery is happening. That's yep. not where the work is going. So um, I think this is what what highlights the point here is you talk about the special forces and, you know, our our, our um, leadership at Common Mission Project, that um, Alex Gallo has told us the story that when they were at the, at the height of the surge of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in the, the mid 2008, that the army was just giving them gear. And Alex will tell you very, you know, yep. frankly, we didn't take it with us because it doesn't solve any of the problems that we had. And nobody asked us what problems they had. They just were giving you equipment. And as a former infantry guy you want to add 10 pounds to my ruck, we're going to have a problem exactly. unless you can demonstrate the value. Because until you've rucked 20, 30, 40 miles with a hundred pounds and carrying a, you know, a machine gun or whatever on you, five pounds, it can do or die. And oh, if yeah. you don't understand why you're adding it, these, these are the kind of things that you can get out of the classroom and ask the question. That's not what has been traditionally happening in a lot of places, not just the defense department, but just a lot of places in industry in general.
1: And what is incredible in this example, and, and I mean, you, we use it in the military, but any anybody who goes to uh, any kind of pilgrimage or camping, you learn the value of measuring the weight of the backpack that you'll be carrying. You're going to Europe for three months and going to be mm-hmm. backpacking from hostel to hostel, the same thing, right? So anybody right. who knows that you will be the, uh, you, you're going to become the, the mule of your, of your own uh, uh, property that you're going to be carrying in your back and you get the right to get it wrong once right yes. so uh, you put it together and uh, you go out and you say oh crap i got the wrong kind of backpack or i got uh, uh, i didn't pack the right gear and i discovered that i was missing whatever a tent or i was missing a uh, so you get it wrong once that's fine but you learn from your experience so seasoned yes. hikers learn and and Organizations need to do the same, right? Yes. So what is impressive is that we keep we keep getting it wrong, right? That the military can keep giving the wrong gear to people, even though by, by iteration four, right? That of thousands of infantry, uh, you should have... So a lot of this has to do with the lack of mechanisms to get out of the building, to communicate, yes. to get that feedback from the bottom up uh, and to have systems that are built into the... Build, measure, learn, dynamic. Hacking Mm -hmm. for defense, some problems are damn simple, right? And when you see the final result, you say, really, did we need to run a project for this? But nobody had taken the effort to go and ask the customers, the beneficiaries, what Mm -hmm. do they want? And of course, as we've said it a hundred times already in this podcast, it is not the job of the beneficiary to tell you what they want because they are not developers. They are not engineers. They don't know, Mm -hmm. but they know the pain point. They know the problem. So if you show them three solutions, if you A-B test it, if you show them one MVP and then another, they will be the fantastic tool that you need to co-create in the private sector. Then you'll have product market fit, and you'll get filthy rich, right? In mission-driven, you'll solve people's lives. You'll make their lives better. You'll save uh, infantrymen uh, lives uh, li- mm-hmm. quite literally sometimes by yes. getting out of the building, asking them and understanding their problem. Then is your job as the entrepreneur to provide solutions. They can then tell you if they work or not also in real world settings.
0: Yeah, you know, I think, and that's one of the things that, you know, that I've experienced professionally is that oftentimes leadership wants to be right. They don't want to do the right thing. So that's one thing Correct. I'll highlight here is those are two different things. The second thing I'll say is that Oftentimes, the way that things have been pitched to me is not only do I know the problem, but I know the solution. And the unwillingness to take a step back and say, hey, I don't know, which I think in the Hacking for environment, we've gotten very good at, right? Because I'm don't, i not a subject matter expert on 99% Nothing. of the problems. But right, yeah. I mean, it's like I know the process well. But the idea that when – and this is where I've heard it and then I've seen it fail time and time again is here's the problem. Here's the solution. And when you say, well, well what are we trying to solve for? They can't articulate it okay, yep. there's red flag number one. Red flag number two is obviously that here's the solution to this problem that you have that's ill-defined. Well, anybody who's taught this class or who's gone through it as a student will know that the problem you start with is not the one you end up solving for. And it's not just an academic exercise, that's real life, Yep. right? What are we really trying to solve for? And this is where a lot of people get it wrong in my experience is that they they want to be right and not do the right thing. Good leaders good student teams, good faculty, good, you know, whatever, they need to know, I don't know everything. I may be far enough removed from a certain problem domain that I can't articulate what people are going through. So they have to take that step back. Well, it takes time sometimes. And it takes it takes uh, somebody uh, willing to put their ego aside and say, yeah, just because I'm the, the CEO or COO or the managing director that I may not know this area, the pain as well as I think I do. I know the output of some of that pain, so we need to kind of go do some discovery work here. Uh, this is where organizations get it wrong, and this is where a lot of entrepreneurs get it wrong. I've got this great idea. Well, have you validated it? Have you gone through and done the discovery process? And then there's crickets.
1: No, you're you're completely right, Jim. I, I would say that one of the one of the biggest issues that we frequently encounter is that there is a certain Uberis that comes from from uh, waterfall planning, which is mm-hmm. frequently the way we do planning in government, and the, this is the one that you describe. We think we know what the customer wants before we get out of it, and we see that in the shape of uh, in the shape of the requirements that go, for example, for a program that gets established in a in a conference room somewhere very far from where the final beneficiary will uh, will experience the result of the project. And once those are set in stone frequently at the beginning of the planning process, it's very difficult to get out of it. Uh, yeah. So getting out of the building starts by creating learning institutional learning mechanisms. And for all the virtues that planning has brought to many organizations, uh, one problem of poorly performed strategic planning is the building of inflexibility that doesn't allow us to then go out. One of the things that hacking for tries to fix and i think it does a great job doing it is uh, taking us away from this tradition of setting requirements before we 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 understand the problem yeah and that and that's exactly the, the the point i think that's a really poignant point excuse me
0: is that we waterfall has its value right we know there are certain projects that work really well with it you're building a ship whatever like you've got to have requirements there but we've kind of already propositioned. we know what we're building but in this environment so often, and I, I would say the majority of environments, we don't really know what it is we're trying to solve for. Now, there are those times where you might get a really good idea and it takes off and that, that's great. But, you know, the value of getting out of the classroom and we go back to this idea of the hundred interviews is that you need to interact with as many people and not just direct beneficiaries necessarily, but as many people who are touched by this problem space in order to define what it is you're trying to solve for. And this is where you know, that getting out of the classroom is going to do is going to do that for the student teams. It's going to do that for for entrepreneurs, for innovators is, well, let's go and test this stuff. You know, that's the big thing is that we don't know if it's going to work or not. We don't really know what the problem is, but let's start with an MVP. Correct. We're going to validate, invalidate it and go along this way. We're going to build, measure and learn to, to what you had said previously. So, you know, there has to be really deep discovery around a problem domain before you can even be moving into I like, this is the direction we have to go. Now, pieces of information will tie, you know, feed into that, right? They're going to, we need to go this direction or that direction. But that first 30, 40 interviews is just kind of a setting the foundation for what it may end up being your problem domain. And we don't know at that point, it's not uncommon to have 60, 70 interviews and then have a pivot because Correct. it's like, oh, There's a crucial piece of information here that we were not able to find and that the the government customer was never going to find by virtue of the fact that they couldn't do what we're
1: doing right here. Yeah, it's not only not uncommon. I I haven't seen ever an entrepreneurship project that doesn't have at least one important pivot so far, right? I've I've, I've seen hundreds of them by now. I haven't Mm -hmm. seen yet one. Without a single pivot. Now, yeah. in theory, right? Statistically speaking, you might get it right from the get-go, right? So, at one point, you roll. You you might be able to flip a coin a hundred times and get uh, and get a uh, hundred times. Uh, but but uh, it, but it's it's hard, right? So yes, um, uh, those pivots are really important, and they demonstrate the value of getting out of the building. Uh, to your point, I would say, yeah, there is a value of waterfall, and normally that value is expressed when you have a fully populated. Mission mall canvas, right? Or so right. business canvas. If you, if if everything there has been validated, right? If you, if you gone out of the building, if you talk basically, if you have what Steve Blank called, right? If you have a, mm-hmm. a, a startup is a temporary organization designed to experiment and test a a, a, a business model. Well, if you right. if you have gone out of the startup phase, in, internal in, entrepreneurship or, in, in, or or not. If, you, if every element has been validated, if you got out of the building, if you experiment and you feel that you're right, then yeah, you basically have a franchise at this point. You, you have right. something yeah. that you're going to be repeating. And even in that case, a business model that is solid today might not be solid tomorrow. Exactly. Because the environment changes. So even for big corporations, you don't want to be the Kodak, right? Again, we used it frequently. You are in Rochester, Jim. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you everything is fantastic until it's not. So even big organizations need to leave space from, from time to time, even in the most well tested uh mission model canvas or business model that you might have. You still want to allow yourself from time to time to do go back to basics and experiment and ask the question, let me revalidate what I have because the environment has changed. We we had a great episode on Chat GPT, right? So yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the world is shifting under our feet, and we don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, Italy is banning it. Other companies are being built. Today, if you go to the Bay Area, I live nearby uh, Silicon Valley, uh, every freaking person in the coffee shop is building an AI startup right now, right? It, it was crypto two years ago. Right now, it's not crypto. Right now, it's not anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> not crypto. So, so that is shifting, right? And as that shifts... Uh, uh, companies that were well-established might become obsolete, right? And the same goes for war fighting or uh, uh, creating value for the environment, right? We need to make sure that we are experimenting. So I would say, yeah, Waterfall will allow you to repeat a well-established business model. But even in that case, um, you're, you should leave the option open for getting out of the building.
0: Yeah. And, I, and, you know, even getting out of the building, one of the examples that I kind of give to my students is there's a, a great case study from Procter & Gamble from a number of years ago. And Procter & Gamble owns a lot of um, obviously a lot of subsidiaries like 3M and and, and uh, dental care companies. And I was one of the things that was interesting to me was this idea of the uh, white strips that people use on their teeth fairly frequently. They're pretty ubiquitous yep. now in supermarkets. Well, the reason that started is because Procter & Gamble has a very robust uh, design thinking Methodology in house. What they say is, you work at 3M and adhesives, you should talk to the people in the toothpaste department. Correct. Well, how did how did those white strips become a thing? It's because people were allowed to get out of their own space, interact with other folks, and see like what are you working on? What's interesting? And say, oh, that sparks an idea, and this sparks an idea, and then all of a sudden you get these really innovative products that come out of it because people are getting out of that space. So you can do that entrepreneurship as well, right? It's not just about starting oh, yeah. a business, but it's how do you approach a problem or maybe not even a problem seeing this incredible opportunity that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't left your desk?
1: I tell some of my students, some of them from either civilian or military uh, uh, institutions, uh, sometimes I'm humble enough uh, that I'll be happy enough if you get out of your cubicle, forget out of the building, right? So or right. If you get out of your floor, right? So uh, just for those, for folks that, are, are, that come from, from public administration, I mean, uh, the amount of silos that we build around us uh, is, is uh, horrible. They, this is true also for big corporations, right? So your example, mm-hmm. Procter & Gamble, you, It's the opposite, right? So it's an right. organization that actively encourages people from very different uh, places to come together. In the military, I would say one of the things that DARPA has done really well is precisely that, right? So how exactly, can I yeah. put together... Uh, uh grandmothers uh, from uh, from yesterday and material engineering people and the uh, computer science folks in the same room and see what happens and actually some wearable fabric came out of it right and exactly cr- yeah it yeah. would teach them how to knit better and how to put some of the semiconductors that are uh, put together in the shape of, of filament in a different way right so exactly where where, where, where innovation happens when walls collide, right? When you rub things, uh, uh, you rub two sticks together and you see the sparkles, right? And, and yep. the, that will not happen inside of your uh, little shell, right?
0: No, no. And, you know, I think the other part about it too is, and this is something that I think is just fundamentally as human beings, especially as Americans. I remember there was a study a few years ago I saw that uh, hu- Americans are typically uncomfortable with anything more than three seconds of silence. So as a faculty member, what I would, what I would uh, what I do in class, and I, I'd encourage you to try as a little social experiment, is ask a question. And I find this works more with undergrads, is there'll be silence. And then you just wait. And seeing the, uh, the, un- the people being uncomfortable with what that I'm teaching them is this idea of empathetic learning. That happens out of the classroom. Empathetic listening happens out of the classroom. You know, we talk about this idea of active listening. Do you listen for the sake of listening, or are you listening to reply? Oh, yeah. Well, these are things that we want our you know, our students coming out of university to have these skill sets. Well, how are we actually equipping them to do so? I, I don't think we are because we have been conditioned to be listening to provide a response, to be listening to be right instead of okay, let me digest this. Let me kind of repeat back what I heard this person say. I'm going to take this back for a little bit and I'm going to think about what it is and I'm going to come back and present them with, here's what I think you said. Here's the direction I think you, you need to go. Can you validate or invalidate anything I may have, I may have missed? And this idea of um, getting out of the classroom is not just the, the domain understanding, but it's all of these soft skills that too many of us lack, right? Whether it's active listening, whether it's uh, empathetic listening, there's so many things that we are just not we're not good about well how do you get good at that you 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 go talk to people and you listen to them that is one of the biggest barriers to success when you get into industry is not being able to listen it's 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 my experience has been there all the time good leaders don't always know the answers but they know how to listen and they know how to find the resources to break down those silos because they recognize that they exist as well
1: yeah i i couldn't agree more that's a, such a good point our listeners will recognize this, right? If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you care about entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation, right? Because you've been in that world one way or another. And if that's the case, you with your friends have said at one point, wouldn't be cool if there would be product X, right? Normally it comes mm-hmm. from a need, right? That the entrepreneur is the person that sees in the problems of today, the markets of tomorrow, right? So we, we see a problem and and we don't whine about it. We start dreaming about how you would fix it, right? And it's almost this bias to action that starts to mm-hmm. build as you, as you progress. But it's funny how you start saying, well, product X, it could do this and that. And, so, and until you actually start to execute, we're all full of it, right? So, and yeah, we- if you if you are if you are humble, you know it. But many of us think, oh, well, you have the solution for it, and you don't, right? No. And it is until you start to experiment and you put the make the first MVP and you do it. It's a sweat where that goes goes into entrepreneurship that you start to discover all the things that are missing from your mm-hmm. great idea, and you say, oh crap, that's why that's why it's not being done like this this way, right? So it is this idea that ideas are worthless, execution is everything, uh, that makes valid. The idea of getting out of the building, right? Because you will not get it right until you are confronted with the realities of the market, of the engineering challenge, of the loss of physics, material engineering, everything, right? Altogether, morality, uh, ethics, right? All of these elements that will not become evident until uh, uh, you enter close contact with the beneficiaries and the people adjacent to them. Yeah,
0: you know, and this is something that I, you know, I'm 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 teaching a a wicked problems course this semester, and one of the things that's been interesting about that is, and this is all undergraduate students, which I'm not typically teaching. I usually have a good mix, uh, predominantly graduate students. That's been an interesting experience for me, nonetheless. But the idea of right, yeah. So it's like let's getting out of the classroom and getting the students to go and actually talk to people. So one of the ones um, that that the student team has been working on is is uh, is transportation for individuals that have mobility uh, uh, difficulties or disabilities. And, you know, they're talking about things on campus and everything else they're working on. And I said, well, you know, just down the street from campus, there are these, there's this incredible center, Mary Cariola Center. So um, anybody that's interested about, but they're, it's an incredible organization that is working with severely disabled students and working in an environment here in Rochester, where there's a lot of A lot of underfunding, just like there is in a lot of other places for students with these type of mobility or uh, cognitive um, disabilities. Well, the students can go and actually go and experience, what is it like trying to get these students off the bus? What is it like to not have the buses, uh, the, the, the personally owned vehicles to help with them? You can't replicate that unless you actually go and see it. And then that builds an understanding of saying, my problem that I thought was in this little area, my little bubble, say of campus, is actually something that's very acutely felt across the spectrum. Oh, and by the way, it's not just mobility challenge. Maybe it's somebody who's got sight uh, disabilities or has a, is hearing impaired, whatever. You start to find all of these areas that you hadn't considered as being part of your domain and saying, oh, well, the problem is actually not what I thought it was. The problem really has to do with X. I can't teach that. You can't teach that. I think we're pretty good faculty members, but I can't teach students to feel that until they can actually experience it. And that's why getting out of the classrooms, those 100 touch points, there are so many good reasons for doing
1: that beyond just the the parameters of getting a good grade in the class, right? Anybody who has been a caregiver with, uh, with of somebody with mobility issues, be that because or, or yourself, right? Be that because right. you broke your leg or because your relative, elder relative, suddenly lost some mobility uh, that he or she used to have before. Uh, so I'm 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 saying specifically of you suddenly became a caregiver, right? Not not yes. not somebody who has the habit suddenly. You will notice the lack of every ramp, right? You will notice all, all things that were obscured to you, and it's mm-hmm. unfair because in 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 a perfect world, uh, humans would have that empathy for others without being touched directly for to them. But the right. by it, But the reality is that the moment you experience it's only the world changes for you, and 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 mm-hmm. that's a good example, right? So you yeah. you become acutely aware of the importance of accommodations and. Uh, a, a mobility-friendly architecture and all this important stuff that we, fortunately as a society, have more and more recognized as as, as relevant and important. But you, right. you you become an advocate of it the moment you or somebody you care about is now close because then you are experiencing. Now it's you who has to deal with the problem with the wheel. It's not any more than abstraction. Um, right. This goes the same for planning. Right. Yes. So, A planner that never had to experience the problem themselves uh, will be very distant. Even though you might have intellectually an understanding that people need ramps for wheelchairs, it is until you come to a freaking sidewalk and there's no ramp that you say, why, right? The same goes for the decision maker. You might know that this problem is important, that your operator is struggling with X, Y, and Z, but if you experience it for a weekend... Right. Or it, 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 you'll know what the problem is if you sit next to him or her. Right. So Henry Mintzberg, one of the uh, uh, most famous and most recognized uh, uh, authors right now in management and strategic planning, he says, well, the only thing that I did that was revolutionary is that I sat with managers and I saw what they would do uh, throughout the day. Right. This is not at all any kind of earth shattering idea, but nobody had done it before. Right. Yeah, we don't want our students to be in that situation.
0: Exactly, and you know, so it's kind of a segue into the, the 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 next one here is kind of this idea that um I there was an article from Inside Higher Ed uh, author joint uh, Johanna Alonso and she she said something here that I think is important for all of us. Um, students cited one clear way professors could make them more interested in the material is by relating it more closely to their future careers. One fourth of students surveyed suggested that lessons with real-world applications, including those grounded in experiential learning, would improve their engagement. Is that not getting out of the classroom? Is that not being able to have those experiences and those touch points that you cannot replicate with a discussion in the classroom? That's what's going on here. So, you know, whether it's a student finding their, what they want to be doing and where they want to be going, that's great. But it's an idea of building this idea, again, going back to this idea of ramps you shouldn't have to necessarily not have access to one to realize that this is a gap and that you it's when it's too late almost, right? Because if there's no ramp there, it's not like, well, I'll wait for five minutes until the ramp machine comes and puts it down for me. Okay. Like, well, I can't get here. Right. I physically can't get yep. into this location. And you know, people who have been in wheelchairs, I listen to NPR a lot. And this is something that they will go and just like, we can't even get in a restaurant. So they're, they're sitting at a yeah, on the sidewalk and it's like, well, as a society, are these not things that we know is a, is an issue? Until you experience it, this is one of the ways that H4 really helps out in changing mindsets is that we shouldn't have to wait until that moment comes to try to fix it when we can recognize that it's all there.
1: Yep, no, now, I completely... I completely agree, and what I would say is, uh, uh, about this is that one of the advantages, by the way, is that we learn, right? So this is the, right. measure, the build, build, measure, learn, right? And uh, what we see a lot in serial entrepreneurs is that they, they carry their knowledge from from venture to venture, right? And mm-hmm. once I was, once one of us has been uh, 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 on a on a wheelchair, as I said, because you broke your leg. From from that moment on, you'll be very aware of these kind of things, ideally. Right. And at that right. point, because you experience. So we, we want that from our students, right? As you get out of the building and that starts to be, become a habit, you, you continue acquiring skills. To, that then will carry to your next projects. And what I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen it too, Jim, when students mm-hmm. that came through one of my classes years ago and they come to me, say, "Well, now, now I see the world differently, right? I, I, I have yes. this habit now of, of constantly looking for the experience." They, they will say it in different ways, but that's what they're, yeah, they're right. saying. And and I would say that that when, when I when I when, when I explain what is the value of what we do in programs like this one, that's it. It's not solving problem X. I mean, we're happy to solve the problems for sponsors, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. But if we do our job right, what ends up happening is our students make experiential learning the cornerstone or the cornerstone of their managerial practice, right? This exactly. Becomes managers that are very hands-on all the time. They're open to questions. You were saying that listen to learn not to be yes, right not as to be you right saying, and and that comes from that so if we can make more of those managers uh, experience the challenges of execution of their organizations we'll get much better solutions and we'll get happier people working in great working environments right and i think that's what exactly. we're doing
0: yeah and i think that's it's really you know kind of the way that this has to be done is we uh, you know, this is a uh, I know it's, it's a tired saying, but these students are the future. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, political affiliations, religion, whatever, none of those things matter, right? How do we create people who are going to go into an environment and be able to understand what their struggles are within their organization, within their team, listen to that, be receptive to it because they want to do the right thing, not be right. And this is where it's really that 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 shift of focus really happens by getting out of the classroom. I think the other thing I'll talk about, too, in this course, and it's something that, you know, as faculty, as universities, as just human beings, we should be concerned about is not concerned about, but that we can be happy about in this program is when you get out of the classroom and you start networking, let's just talk fundamentally here. I've had students that will go and do their sponsor site visits and come back with three job offers. Yep.
1: Yep and and I mean that's true that's true in so many places right so the 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 literature is very clear about the fact that people don't get jobs through uh, job ads, right? There's a right. there's a performative value on all of these ads. Most people who actually get jobs, they get them because of the they know somebody who knows somebody who connected them. Now I mean they have to be good at what they do, but of course yeah yeah saying. That, that entry point comes not from a random ad that you read on LinkedIn. It comes from a contact point that either you or one of your friends got you, right? And right. often it's because of People can see you performing, right? So mm-hmm. the other thing is that you become better at what you're doing for that. So uh, absolutely, I got as I, got, I get as a cyber expert or as a, and I come as a project manager. I go in as an MBA student, and I come out as an expert on mobility. Right? We were talking. So you you start mm-hmm. to carry what we call experience into yes. your not only resume but your way of applying heuristics to different problems. You are not going to get anything like that. I don't want to be a, 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 I'm a bureaucrat, right? So I work in a big governmental organization. (laughs) So I want, I don't want, so, but what we call bureaucratic mentality, it's basically what we would call today in the literature, the lack of desire for a growth mentality, Right. Absolutely. It's yeah. To say that to bureaucrats, because I know a lot of people in the public service that are the most creative, intelligent, uh, 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 interested, committed individuals on the planet, both in the civilian and military sides of the of the shop. Yes. Yes. But it is true that in a bureaucracy, especially if you have social skills, it's easy to hide under the radar and stop growing, right? Yes. And the challenge here is, and in fact, sometimes organizations will punish you if you have a growth mentality, if you have the wrong boss, right? Yes. So what we want here is to reverse that in big organizations, right? Especially in, uh, for, for for big impact. We need big, we need DOD. We need FEMA. We need the Department Absolutely. of State. Absolutely, uh, yes. We want people to feel empowered to have that dynamic of getting out of the cubicle, right? Uh, yes. And in two levels. We talked about this, I think, in a previous podcast. First, as employees at the lowest level, as they're entering, so they can be guerrilla warriors. But then when they grow, we want them to be bosses that they will empower their people to go out of the building. So it's it cuts all the ways, right?
0: Yeah. And and this kind of, you know, the kind of, you know, thinking about the H4 uh, thing here is that I've had sponsors come back and say, I learned so much about the about this problem area that I just was completely unaware of. And it's not because they're tr- not trying to do their job well. That's not been my experience 99% of the time. Uh, cool. There's always the outliers. But it's this idea of that the environment and the landscape, as you mentioned earlier, is rapidly changing, right? A year ago, if we were recording this podcast, uh, you know, when we did our, our disruptive technology, we wouldn't have been talking about an yeah. AI chatbot. But these things happen so quickly. And if you're not thinking about those what ifs, and how how your work is gonna be impacted. Going back to Kodak, right? It's like, oh, we're big enough, we're too big to fail. Well, we see time and time again that when you lack innovation and oh, you yeah. lack that type of entrepreneurial spirit in an organization, well, again, I live in Rochester. Yep. It's not what it was 30 years ago. And there's a lot of reasons why. But you know, how are we how are we shaping the future with this program uh, to, to build a better future? In my in my mind, really has to do predominantly go and talk to people really understand what they're experiencing every day, whatever that problem is. And the nice thing about the H4 is that we are talking about social impact problems. We do have Department of Defense and Homeland Security. You know, one of the problems that I had that I mentioned in the article is a communication accessibility for people going through TSA security. And, you know, something that I never thought about too much as a native English speaker, but yeah, it can be very scary for somebody who's hard of hearing or who's not a native English speaker oh, yeah. to go through security and they have a lot of, uh, a, you know, a lot of trepidation there. Well, how do you learn about what that's like? Well, students go and talk to people who've had these experiences and they're they able to come back and say, hey, you know, Jim, we, we know that the problem area was this. But do you think how expansive this actually could be if we had this applied correctly and seeing their eyes
1: light up? You're like, yep, you get it. This is why this pro- these programs exist. I, I agree, and this goes to one important thing, which is how to get out of the building and I really appreciate the comment that you made i, I It made me think of 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 a example that is very similar to the one you gave that I had with one student where where uh, she was working with victims of uh, uh, sexual abuse uh, that were from 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 different nationalities that didn't speak good English. So the question was how do you run an effective an effective uh, investigation, right? In, in this case. So, how do you get out of the building? There is important because you are dealing with a very vulnerable population. We couldn't go and just. Absolutely. In. So, uh, in the particular was how, how do you conduct uh, 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 interviews in this? languages that are not german or french right that are or spanish right these mm-hmm. more uh, less less common languages that you'll have to use an interpreter on the phone and it's going to be much impersonal etc so uh, getting out of the building was important but in this case the student has to had to get very creative about how to run uh, the interview process uh, and what she did that i thought was brilliant is that she contacted not the victims themselves because it would have been very difficult to have those interviews with them but mm-hmm. the uh, organizations that advocate for them right so so all of the NGOs that work with that have the the language experience in fact they have many people who speak the same language uh, mm-hmm. and know the problem as well as the victims because they've been working with them for 10 15 years right so exactly uh, yeah it, the design of the experience out of the building is as important as getting out of the building, right? It's not just... Ab- absolutely. Yeah. It's not just getting out of the building it's how, and then things that we have already spoken about in this podcast is the sequence, right? Yes. What do I need to learn? What is this, this, the, the stepping stones of validated learning that I need from my canvas? And what are the best ways of learning? And we, we talk about the interviews, right? I, I, I frequently mention now the term contact point instead of contact interview, points, yeah, instead but of interview, whatever you right. want to call them, right? So... Um, uh, how can I experience an interaction with a hundred beneficiaries? That is not necessarily me being Le- Levi Strauss, asking them questions, right? It might be right. presenting them on MVP, seeing them in the real world, etc. Uh So the design of how to get out of the building, it's a skill set that I think is really important. Uh, I think that in the past that uh, we have already recommended testing business ideas from strategy oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. so, Alex th- also this- books. Exactly. so it's one of those new resources. There are others that are available uh, to say, okay, how can I get good at this? 100 is nothing, right? 100 points of oh, contact. A drop in the bucket. For the amount of learning that I need to do to get this right. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so designing a good experience, it's a challenge. It's fun. And this is one of the places where faculty can be the most useful, right? Uh, Yes, because we guide our students to say, okay, a good way to test this, that it's not going to the victims of rape might be. And then you kind of find your your way to test your core idea, to validate your knowledge without necessarily having to uh, 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 interview people when they are going through the worst moment in their
0: life. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is this goes back again to that idea. And if you use something as traumatic as what you mentioned, is you come at it from a point of empathy immediately. You Correct. have to, right? Um, there's a great example on uh, Steve Blank's website about um, this uh, good and bad ways of conducting discovery interviews and about uh, diabetes. Yep. And having the, the, the prick your fingers for, for blood work. Um, it's one thing to say, I built you something that you need, which how do you know what I need versus I've been doing this to myself to kind of check it out. And I'm understanding all these things that you're experiencing. And I'm like, I have so much more empathy for how difficult day to day can be for you because I've been doing this. You don't get that from reading a book. You don't get that from listening to a professor lecture. You get that from sitting in somebody else's seat, being in their shoes. So that is why getting out of the classroom for all the reasons we've discussed over this past, this episode, I have to be highlighted. And again, even more than what we've probably even recognized at this point, but Looking at the literature, looking at what's going on in higher education, looking at what's going on in industry, again, become empathetic listeners, get out there and interact with as many people as you can to define what the problem is. And then, then you can get to what is a minimum viable product, a solution could look like. But that only happens through validating the problem space
1: very robustly early on. I, I would challenge the people who are listening to us to think about the most entrepreneurial people you, individ, you, you, you know, the, the, the individuals that you admire in their entrepreneurship. I, I'm not talking about the Steve Jobs. Now, people you know, yeah. right? Close, yeah. close to you, I can bet that they're interesting people, right? oh 100% they play an instrument they skydive they knit they th- these are people who cannot stay put that they need to experience stuff right that they mm-hmm. have been uh, maybe they maybe they lack commitment and there's literature in that regard maybe they, they didn't have the <laughs> the time to become professional tennis players because then they got curious with other sport and they went right. and started so these are what we call the renaissance uh, person right the cliche of the individuals yes. that knows everything it's not that you know everything actually sometimes entrepreneurs tend to be uh, shallow in their le- in their in their level of knowledge what they're really good at is creating the teams that supplement with depth where they're shallow about right and this is the yes. thing the... but what's happening is that Successful entrepreneurship requires kind of this butterfly behavior where you're going from flower to flower, learning about stuff. when you have that hunger and hacking for tries to build a system for it. right mm-hmm. People do it innately when, when they are when they are entrepreneurs. but what we're trying to teach our students is to do that in a systematic way and develop this kind of curiosity from you were saying prickling your finger right to, from feeling stuff on your own skin. Right from yeah. touching and, and 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 man, it's it. Once you start doing it, it becomes almost a pedantic habit. So when somebody tells you about some, well, how do you know? Right. Right. You, how do you know? Right. So and then you get curious about it. So I think that that's that's for me. If I could say, what is the one thing that you enjoy about this kind of experiential teaching about getting out of the classroom is that once you do it, uh, uh, it's really hard to reverse this desire from knowing directly from the source what, what, what the problems are.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a great way to close it out. And I love what you just said there, Rodrigo. So I think the last thought I'm going to have here is be the butterfly in in the, uh, in the meadow, right? That's a great visualization about how you can get out of there and try a thousand flowers. Right. And that's the way we have to, that's the value of getting out of the classroom and I guess the butterfly getting out of the cocoon or the chrysalis, whatever it may be. So (laughs) Um, we'll, we'll close out this episode on, I think on that really beautiful visual, as you're saying it, Rodrigo. I just, it's like, I think that's a great way of being able to spring, shut this down. Spring so, is here.
1: So we're all in that mindset. is here.
0: Yes, exactly. So Rodrigo, always a pleasure uh, to speak with you this. I hope this has been a fun episode to listen to, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.
1: Jim, thank you so much.
0: Thank you again to the Commission Project for their support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems, and in doing so, create vibrant, diverse ecosystems for government, academia, and industry, build partnerships around problems, prototypes, and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. To find out more about the Common Mission Project, please visit commonmission.us, which is linked in the description of this episode, as well as finding out options on how you can get more involved with our wonderful nonprofit organizations, including opportunities to donate. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next one.